Hi, I'm Tim Root, Head of Industry Relations for Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill, where we talk through the intersection and impacts of politics, policy development coming out of Washington, D.C., on the real estate markets and real estate finance. Today, I've got the distinct honor and pleasure to speak with the Honorable Dana Wade. Dana is the FHA Commissioner, Assistant Deputy Secretary of HUD. For those of you unfamiliar with Dana's background, I can tell you it is unambiguously impressive. Uh, for one, she worked for uh, John McCain during his presidential run in 2008. She was a budget analyst for Paul Ryan on the House Budget Committee, uh, Deputy Staff Director of Senate Banking, Acting Commissioner of FHA, that's right, 2017-2018, as well as an Associate Director of OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, and now, of course, FHA Commissioner. So Dana, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Tim. It is such a, pl a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate that, that kind introduction. That's going to be a little hard to follow. Well, I, I read it just like you wrote it, Dana. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, um, so Dana, on top of that, I took the liberty of putting together a highlight reel of what you and some of your colleagues have been able to accomplish over the past four years. I realized that you had different roles throughout that, but nonetheless were clearly um, central to these sort of accomplishments. So I'm going to go through them real quick, a bit of a scene setter. So one, I counted about 65 mortgage letters that were put together in those four years. It's exponentially greater than any, well, last four or eight years probably combined, eight years combined. Um, you guys rewrote the FHA handbook basically, grew the economic value of the MMI fund by 40 billion, doubling the value essentially. You tripled the capital ratio from two to 6% of the MMI fund, managed through, I counted 30 hurricanes. Um, Obviously, you have a global pandemic, which comes with the congressionally mandated uh, forbearances and foreclosure moratoriums. You guys kicked off a highly anticipated and sorely needed IT modernization effort, which included developing an AUS, automated underwriting system, digitizing much of the claims submission and processing tasks, ton of work to improve the financial performance of HECMs. So all of that leads me to my first question, which is if you'd be kind enough to kind of take us through how your previous experiences on the Hill and at OMB kind of helped shape your priorities at HUD and really the tactics for getting things done at FHA. Yes, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about that. And, and first of all, I just want to congratulate and say thank you to my team at HUD and FHA. It's through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that all of those initiatives were, uh, were able to be delivered, and I'm just so proud of them. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the things that you learn when you come into a role like this, or any role, uh, whether it be Capitol Hill uh, or any, a lot of Washington roles in government, is that you have a limited amount of time to accomplish your priorities. And, you know, knowing that this is a finite experience, you want to try to get as much done as possible. And... You know, I think a lot of us came to this, this role and came to uh, this administration just thinking, you know, we're going to try to crank out as much as we can, do the most good, uh, try to really transform FHA into a world-class business organization. You know, a lot of that has been through technology modernization. Um, a lot of it is, has just been through 
you know, like you said, updating our rules and regulations, uh, providing more clarity to lenders and to markets, um, and, and, you know, being there, being there to communicate, uh, being more transparent in how we report our financials. So, I mean, we've had a ton of accomplishments. You know, we know that our time here is limited, however long that may be. And, you know, we just, we know that it's important to hit the ground running. Uh, that's what I've always done. And, and I think kind of some of my past roles have taught me that, you know, I, it's interesting. Um, I've had a lot of roles where I have had to uh, deal with, um, you know, some type of crisis uh, or, or some, some type of disaster. As an example, I started working on Capitol Hill on the budget committee for Paul Ryan, uh, right in the middle of the financial crisis, the last uh, great recession. And uh, I worked on the troubled asset relief program. I worked on the conservatorship of, of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And you know, those were all um, just huge historic events. And, you know, I learned a lot from them and I had to be adaptable and, and work hard and work fast. I think I've applied a lot of those lessons to, uh, to this year with the COVID pandemic. Now, I know this year is really different um, from any other year in my lifetime and probably in a lot of our lifetimes. Um, we didn't know that we would be faced with this. It, it came upon us so quickly. And I don't think anyone could have, could have predicted the impact of COVID. But you know, the one thing that I've learned from all of those past roles, either in the House Budget Committee, the Senate Banking Committee, Senate Appropriations Committee, where I, all, where I worked, um, is that um, you know, really, you never know what is going to come at you. And you have to be able to uh, be thinking through kind of what is the worst case scenario? What do I need to have in my back pocket in case things get you know, worse? Um, and, and what sort of tools do I need to manage any kind of disaster or crisis? You are right. I've also worked a lot on federal disaster response. As part of my role at OMB, um, I was the associate director that oversaw all, almost all disaster spending. So whenever there was a hurricane or a major event, a wildfire, you name it, um, you know, I had to be there to work you know, on nights and weekends to be able to respond and to make sure that that funding reached those in need. And so I see my role here at FHA is very similar to that. Um, you know, you do whatever you can you have with the tools that you have to ensure that you can help as many people as possible. In this case, it is helping homeowners who uh, may be facing financial hardships due to COVID. It is helping renters who may be facing eviction. And we've just put together an enormous set of options and a, and a very useful toolkit uh, to be able to provide as much assistance as we can. And so I think all of that, you know, just my ability to respond to, to these challenging and uncertain times is really uh, shaped by my prior experience on, on Capitol Hill. Yeah, no doubt. I know that team very well. Um, and I was just describing this to some of the folks who were on Biden's transition team. I was like, one of the most fascinating aspects of what FHA has been able to accomplish is really just assembling um, the team, not just the career staff, but the appointees, how tight a unit it is and how efficient and productive they are. I mean, I've been around this for quite a while. I've, I've really never seen um, a team come together like that and be as successful in terms of as prolific as they have been with policy, policy development, and really being a good industry partner. Great. That's, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I, and I agree. We have tremendous, I mean, we've had a great political team, but we also have tremendous career staff who, who really believe in the mission of FHA and have been, made themselves um, tremendously valuable to all of us. Absolutely. 
Well, so let me ask you, uh, Dana. So some of the more, I think, less explored topics related to HUD or a lot of the government agencies is, you know, I tried to describe to folks, whether they're lenders or service providers, technology companies, you know, that see FHA and some of the other agencies sometimes it's a bit of a, either a red herring or a plum opportunity for a policy change that uh, would benefit them, the industry, what have you. And I've often told folks, I was like, you know, you have to remember it in Washington that value proposition is a very fluid concept, mm -hmm. right? So what is a good value proposition in commercial terms might be a terrible value proposition um, from a public policy standpoint. Right. So as you think about it, you know, companies will come to you, they'll have a great meeting, they'll come back, uh, report back to their team. Oh my God, Dana, fabulous. Team, fabulous. They loved her ideas. This is definitely gonna happen. Um, and then they never hear from anybody again because you get distracted with the other 90 things that are in front of you and you don't take into consideration or they haven't taken into consideration that you're still gonna have to run the gauntlet would say OMB, and that you, from a social and financial testing perspective, and you might have all the way up to the White House or the National Economic Council, they might have a point of view that's starkly different from the one that you have in terms of what's important and what's not. Do you think mm -hmm. you could give us a, either a hypothetical or a real life scenario where you, know, you kind of touch those bases and what those interactions really look like? Well, that is a great question, and you know, I think you provide some very uh, some good feedback and good advice uh, for folks out there. Um, you know, the first thing I'll say about uh, whenever people come and meet with us in the administration, in in when you have a political role like I do at a government agency, they are surprised with how few political staff are in place. There just aren't a lot of roles, so there are, there are only a few people to make leadership decisions. And you're right. You know, you have to prioritize and there are a lot of things you want to do. And, you know, I don't think any administration can can accomplish everything they want to do. There just aren't enough people. So I think that's one of the most surprising things. Um, but you're right. A, a lot of it, too, is that there is there is what I think a lot of people see as a black box when it comes to the process that any administration goes through in order to make policy changes or get things done. And, you know, I'd say overall, it's a very valuable process. It's a good one with a lot of smart people sharing input. Uh, but the, the one thing I like to kind of tell people, and, and I'm a little biased because I worked at OMB, is that the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, is, is probably the most important and the best agency in Washington. And it's also the one that no one's ever heard of. And uh, certainly no one really knows what they do. I mean, they basically set the president's agenda when it comes to policy, when it comes to, you know, how much money is spent on each policy, when it comes to the regulatory side. So the entire rulemaking side, as well as the management of the federal government. So, you know, personnel policies. Oh, OMB just has a huge purview. When I worked there, um, I was an associate director over seven cabinet level agencies. And I had all of those issues in my portfolio that I had to manage. Um, and, you know, again, you just have time to prioritize. Um, but what, what essentially happens within, you know, the White House or the executive office of the president is that if it is a, an important policy, um, you will convene kind of a policy process with, with members of different councils like the Domestic Policy Council, 
the National Economic Council, National Security Council, and of course OMB, and, uh, and sometimes some others. But um, you really want to make sure that you get the experts in the room to be able to work with agencies on policies that are important enough to be priorities to uh, the president. And, and this is basically the process for, for any administration. You know, and, and I, I think it's also um, so interesting uh, for people to learn that you know, we do have a lot, of, a lot of things and we get a lot of great ideas from the industry that we want to implement. And you know, if you're working in the private sector, you can just sort of flip the switch on and something is live and you, know, you can make a change in policy fairly, fairly uh, well, more easily than you can in government. Um, but in the federal government, we have to run everything through OMB and, and through the executive office of the president and they basically have to give us their sign off. And that's not just kind of formal rulemaking, you know, it, it's pretty much everything. Um, I think the level of importance determines the amount of process it gets and the amount of attention of some of the more senior folks in the White House. But, uh, but I mean, you name it, I can probably give you a hundred different examples. Every single mortgagee letter that you mentioned, um, you know, guidance to lenders had to be reviewed with OMB, with both the budget team, which is made up of a lot of experts in government and policy, as well as the regulatory side, something called uh, OIRA. And, uh, and you know, we really do have to get their sign off before anything becomes finalized. Um, and so it's, it's definitely um, big or small, there is always a process in federal government. It's something to keep in mind, uh, I think, no matter what administration you work in. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Um, so I, I got to imagine, though, you had a point of view coming into this from, you know, the, the purchase that you had on the Hill and at OMB. So very different than basically running the agency, which is effectively what you're doing. <laughs> so any, any lessons, learns, regrets, surprises once you got there and actually started doing the job? Well, it, it's funny. I mean, I think we all have regrets, but who has time for regrets? Um, I... <laughs> I, I started this job, and um, and this was in 2017, uh, before the confirmation of Brian Montgomery, and there was no commissioner. I was essentially like the deputy commissioner, or the it's called the general deputy assistant secretary, but I was basically doing the number one and the number two job, which involved everything you can imagine, from uh, policy to personnel to procurement. So I, I think, I mean, one of the biggest lessons learned is, you know, do everything you can to try to bring on good people as soon as possible and get them in so that you're not using valuable time to uh, deal with issues that, you know, maybe someone in another area can deal with or, or someone you bring on uh, can handle. Um, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. And I think it's, it's a lot more difficult when you come into an administration at the beginning, just because you're still working to get people on board. And, you know, the, the process of bringing, of actually onboarding a government employee um, whether it be you know political or career um, is 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 one that takes time and it, it is something I think that amazes people when they find out you know you have to go through the office of personnel management you have to go through the internal uh, HR office uh, within an agency and uh, you know so doing everything you can to get the right people in place is very important you know and eventually we did get there as as you mentioned we have a great team I have wonderful deputy assistant secretaries. Uh, you know, Joe Gormley, who, who runs the single family business and Lamar Seats, who runs multifamily, as well as Keith Becker, who's our chief risk officer. They're all fantastic. Um, Joe was with me from the beginning, but it, it took some time to, to hire some other folks for these positions. And, you know, they're pretty specialized jobs. So, uh, you know, not, not the easiest to fill. 
but, but, you know, I think you can get more done again, when you have the right team of people in place as soon as possible. That's funny. You're describing that. I was kind of laughing to myself. I was describing to somebody, I think it was actually somebody who was applying for a job in uh, the federal government and was bemoaning how long it was taking. And I think my advice to them was, you have to remember when you're dealing with uh, the federal government that it requires essentially a metaphysical change in your perception of patience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Although I think it's also good to always be a little impatient and try to fix things and make them work better. And, you know, we've, at, we've done that to a, a large extent at HUD to try to, you know, grease the, uh, the hiring process to make it go a little more smoothly. Um, so I don't know, maybe a little impatience when you're in, in my seat uh, or actually working here is probably a good thing. Yeah, for sure. I'll chalk that up to youthful exuberance, Dana. <laughs> I'm, I'm neither anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that being said, the, um, as you're looking at this now, whether you stayed on for another three or four years, or if you were just, you know, talking to the incoming team, assuming that the, the Biden team actually, this thing plays out that way. How are you thinking about like the biggest challenges ahead for FHA? And is there any advice that you'd give folks coming in to take your spot? Well, uh, I think, and I think this is a good thing, that I, I expect to see a lot of continuity between this term and the next. Uh, and um, I believe a lot of the policies that we have rolled out will be things that will continue into the future. And let me give you some examples. You know, first of all, um, all of the options and tools that we've provided for homeowners uh, to provide COVID-related relief. Uh, and assistance, you know, whether it be, um, you know, forbearance policies, uh, the expanded loss mitigation toolkit involving a standalone partial payment of claims so that borrowers don't have to worry about balloon payments if they've taken forbearance. You know, basically all of the things that we've done to try to put borrowers in sustainable payment plans and renters as well uh, on the multifamily side. I think those are all things I, I expect uh, will be continued. I think they're good, good policies. I think uh, they're necessary policies. And I, I don't really think there's, there's a whole lot of politics involved. It's really just kind of, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we still are in the middle of it. Let's try to do as much as we can to help people. Um, you know, I also expect, and I'm very hopeful here, that um, the technology transformation, which I believe is the, is the greatest um, technology accomplishment probably of HUD's history um, in, in, in implementing FHA Catalyst, which has provided a much better platform for FHA to be able to do its business. Um, and we're, we have expanded that at a rapid pace and a rapid clip, and I think justified every dollar uh, that Congress has appropriated to us for these purposes. Um, you know, and I'm just incredibly proud of, of the work the team has done, but I expect FHA Catalyst will be around for a long time. And, you know, I also expect it'll be prioritized because it's just a really good thing for FHA. It's a really good thing for the marketplace uh, that we serve, which is, you know, low to moderate income, first time minority borrowers. Um, you know, it really gives them a leg up uh, when it comes to homeownership and helps them build equity. And that's a very, very important mission. So I think from a foundational uh, level, just, you know, taking FHA Catalyst, expanding it, you know, making it even better um, is going to be incredibly important. So I look at a lot of this as, um, you know, I'm sure there will be continuity with the majority of policies at FHA that we have developed uh, this administration. 
Yeah, no, that's obviously a, that's a, a fantastic example of, um, well, of government agency moving with haste, which I rarely see. Um, and certainly developing technology, software development is not necessarily HUD's forte, no offense intended, but um, David Chow has done a remarkable job in terms of putting the rubber to the road. Absolutely. And I mean, this is also something where, you know, I think I've seen a lot of government IT projects fail because I've been in that oversight role so many times. And this is something where we've, we have attained our plan. You know, we've been on budget, we've been on target from a timing perspective. And, you know, I think we're all just very excited and frankly anxious to get this uh, technology put in place because, you know, we have literally FHA was being buried by paper and buried by antiquated systems and complicated procurements. And, you know, it was really coming in the way of our ability to do our mission. So I think we did act with haste just because, you know, we were impatient to get this stuff out and, you know, really to make FHA a lot better. Yeah, well, congrats. I think it's been amazing. And I know Brian Montgomery um, is swooning over those um, developments and the pace of that. So it's really been incredible. Definitely. Yes, he's been a great champion for this effort. So I gotta ask, I mean, this, consider this almost extra credit, right? If you had to sit back, close your eyes, maybe even imagine that you're working at a large independent mortgage banker, preferably <laughs> a you know, FHA originator or servicer. If you think about it and you just got now, take that moment and then you consider that you're potentially gonna have a new administration coming in. Mm -hmm. This new administration has indicated that a more aggressive supervisory and enforcement regime at FHA and elsewhere is soon to come. Um, you've got the potential eviction and foreclosure crisis on the horizon. Um, and what do you think? I mean, what would you be doing or recommending to prepare, and maybe even mitigate some of the business risks ahead? Right. Well, usually I take uh, I take their advice, but you know, <laughs> first of all, let me let me say that I don't I don't think and I, I hope that we do not have a foreclosure crisis or an eviction crisis. And the reason why I say that is because we have worked so hard to provide options to borrowers so that they can cure and they can get on a more sustainable payment plan. And so again, I just think um, from a mortgage industry perspective, servicing those borrowers, um, understand, making sure that FHA understands what is needed and if there are any other policy tools that FHA needs to add, uh, that they will, you know, keeping that line of communication open, we would never have been able to accomplish, um, you know, all of the policy changes as well as FHA catalyst this year, had we not had the input of industry. And that doesn't mean we can do everything that industry wants, but, but honestly, they've been invaluable partners. And I think just from the perspective of the mortgage industry, um, you know, it's important to remember and for FHA to remember that the mortgage industry has really been such a positive contributor to economic growth and, you know, some of the bright spots that we see in the economy. And it's, it's a lot of folks who've been working very, very hard, you know, either to provide, uh, you know, um, mortgages to, to uh, you know, refinance mortgages, uh, to service them. This is a lot of work, a lot of people working overtime. And so I hope we can all kind of step back and appreciate that. And, and the positive role that the mortgage industry has, has played uh, this, this past year. You know, in, in terms of um, enforcement, um, the, the one thing I'll say is you can be aggressive and you can make enforcement a top priority, which we have done. 
Um, you know, we don't turn a blind eye to any bad actor. But the one thing that is incredibly important for all, and that I believe we've been able to accomplish here at FHA through the Memorandum of Understanding with the Department of Justice on Uses of the False Claims Act and, and other measures, we've been able to accomplish more certainty and um, clearer rules of the road. And that is what the industry asks for, certainty. They're not saying, don't penalize us if we've, if we've done something wrong. They're, they're literally just asking us for clarity around enforcement. And, and honestly, I, I hope that the things that we've done uh, will have staying power and will stay with FHA for years to come because I think it's really hard to take a step back from clarity, go back into the world of ambiguity. You know, I'm just hoping that um, you, know, you can marry the goal of having strong, good enforcement um, with providing as much certainty to uh, the mortgage marketplace as possible. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm sure the industry does as well. If you were talking to um, lenders during, um, yeah, before the Trump administration, uh, the last, well, mostly the last term of uh, the Obama administration, you know, mm -hmm. you should describe Eric Holder as Obama's top producing loan officer because <laughs> the attorney general, he was just clipping coupons um, on these fines. And it did feel like at some times that it was much more, um, the enforcement or the fining was fairly arbitrary and it looked a lot more like it's not what you owe, it's what do you got, right? I mean, so you could really hit the financial institutions in particular uh, with heavy fines and really didn't need to tie it back to any explicit uh, formula for, you know, for, uh, for infractions and then the penalties for that infraction. Mm -hmm. And um, companies were waking up in fear of their government. And um, this is a little bit of the fear that folks had coming into uh, the Trump administration is, look, I, I love the, the kinder, gentler enforcement regime, more predictable, not necessarily letting us get away with anything or um, you know, self-enforcement or anything like that or self-policing. This is to your point about certainly clear rules of the road and get back to some level of partnership with industry because you know, especially with the FHA, and the, the mission it has to serve the underserved and to be in every market every day. Um, you know, in those cases, you're going to need lenders who feel confident um, in the program and that they can mitigate the risks. Well, they can identify them and mitigate them. And at the end of the day, reminding politicians that it's not patriotism that compels, you know, private companies to participate in these government programs, right? It's capitalism. So if you're not working with them and treating them as business partners, it's probably like you're gonna lose some pretty important uh, public policy instruments or tools in the process. Yes, I think that is 100% true, Tim. And you know, I think in particular, if you look at what's coming um, at us during the next year, I mean, FHA, because we have that mission to serve low to moderate income borrowers, um, our borrowers have been hit harder by COVID. And we have about 10% of the portfolio in forbearance and delinquent. So that's over 800,000 borrowers. And I think it's really important for everyone to kind of remember, we need the industry. We need, we need I mean, they are doing, um, you know, the huge task of working out these loans with borrowers. They're knocking on doors. They're, you know, doing, reaching out. They're providing information to borrowers on what their options are. And, you know, we need that interaction. Um, the industry is gonna play a very, very important role next year. And, you know, I'm just hoping that, uh, the relationship will continue to be very productive. Yeah, you're here to that. 
All right, Dana, well, I'm gonna let you go with one last one. This is, um, I wouldn't say it's loaded, but I mean, as you're looking back at it, <laughs> you know, any, any regrets while you've been at FHA? I mean, any like missed opportunities, things that you tried to wrestle to the ground and just couldn't tap it out? Well, um, you know, I think we've done a lot I will say that um, we have a roadmap. It's the housing finance reform report that was issued by HUD uh, on behalf of the, the president. And so we kind of have a roadmap for things that we'd like to see done as part of housing finance reform. And I think there is a lot, you know, I understand there is some appetite again. You know, I know I'm a little bit of a skeptic because um, there hasn't been a comprehensive legislative package yet, but there's been some appetite to take on housing finance reform again. Now we obviously have focused on, um, you know, serving the needs of, of borrowers and renters this year in light of COVID. But I would say, you know, had we not had COVID, we would have definitely devoted uh, more attention to, you know, reforming FHA. We suggested potentially some more autonomy to FHA, um, you know, spinning it out of HUD, things like that, which will really allow FHA to serve as a mortgage insurer and to run a business while maintaining the mission. Um, so I think there are things. I also think just kind of, um, you know, providing a little bit more clarity uh, around the types of loans that FHA will insure and not, um, and really looking at the risk and trying to produce um, as many sustainable loans as possible uh, should also be a top priority. I mean, I look at things like the growth and down payment assistance, um, which is not a homogenous thing. There are lots of different types of down payment assistance, but some of it is certainly risky. And so I, I'm hoping that, you know, the next administration will know that they, they can um, balance the role of um, serving the targeted borrowers, low to moderate income, minority, first time home buyers, while also managing the risk and ensuring that FHA has the proper capital to run itself as a business would. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, like you, I, I look at the, the policy objectives as stated by the, the Biden team in terms of expanding home ownership, closing the um, racial gap on home ownership, um, wealth gap, all of those things I think are, are marvelous. And I've long been an advocate of using um, home ownership as that wealth creation opportunity. But Absolutely. it's a little bit like, uh, you know, uh, student loans or college education. It's like, those things are critically important, but not at any cost. So if you look at housing now, where you know you have appreciation rates of 10 or 15%, heck, a little bit even brisker pace right now, the last three months, and then you're taking the most at-risk borrowers who have yet to be successful uh, breaking into home ownership mm -hmm. and potentially using new proxies for capacity, um, willingness, uh, uh, collateral, any of these things to, um, you know, engineer a circumstance where a person can be a homeowner. I love the idea. I, I love it. I don't love it as much in this kind of a frothy housing market, but I like it better when you start taking me through some of the, some of the safety nets, some of the things that you're putting behind the scenes, whether it's servicing practices, insurance, um, reserve funds, whatever so that the most at-risk borrowers who are buying probably near the top of the market, you know, aren't further disadvantaged um, when and if the economy pivots. That's absolutely right. And I mean, we've been able to manage the risk and to, you know, run the business. As you mentioned, our capital is three times the required amount um, set in statute. But we've also increased uh, minority lending, for example. 
we've increased lending to first-time homebuyers. So we've been able to really, you know, hit our targets and, and exceed our mission uh, while, you know, delivering um, better quality financial performance for FHA. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Dana, I don't want to keep you. This has been great. I do appreciate you taking the time. Um, I have to, again, congratulate you on what you've been able to accomplish in the team at FHA and at HUD. It's truly been impressive and a pleasure to work with you all. And, um, you know, I look forward to seeing what you're up to um, in 2021. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.